Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. This is Jason Horsley for the New Books Network, talking to Jonathan Leeson about his latest novel, A Gambler's Anatomy. This is Jason Horsley for the New Books Network talking to Jonathan Leeson about his latest novel, A Gambler's Anatomy. I would actually start with something that I received this morning in an email because I like things that are just fresh and seem to be you know part of what's going on in the present and mm-hmm. it, it, I, this would have made me think of you even if I hadn't been going to talk to you so I'll just read it to you real quick it's from this writer Michael Lesher who's a very interesting writer he writes about child abuse in the Orthodox Jewish community and uh, I spoke to him recently so we've corresponded and uh, we were just commiserating over the the painful nature of our, our, our research. And he wrote this to me. He wrote, The religious sense points to limits in our experience that we recognize as limits, even though they remain, as it were, impenetrable. We try to perceive our reality as if from a dimension we cannot grasp. Nietzsche recognized that this effort leaves a permanent mark which is in some sense a disability, Singed by the fire, he wrote, those who approached it are never again fully intelligible to others. Hmm. That's funny you say that because uh, you, that's a very interesting 
sequence of thoughts. And I, just this morning, I, the only thing I wrote today was that someone in um, Denmark, I think it's Denmark, is is putting together this very eccentric international lexicon where they're asking writers in all different languages to define words. And then they're publishing the whole thing without translation. So the English will be in English and the, you know, Danish will be in Danish and so forth. And I'm one of the English writers, but he, they throw you, they throw you words to define it. He threw me the word oneness and my, uh, maybe I should read, read to you my definition of oneness that I sent him because I'll get it wrong and it'll be a little bit better if I read you the actual, uh, what I sent. Um, but it, 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 it's completely consonant with what you just, uh, what you just quoted me. I wrote, oneness is what? The moment you step back to regard it, you betray it, the way the astronauts betrayed humanity and perhaps even became inhuman by looking at Earth from the moon. Step closer and it dissolves. O-N-E-N-S, never mind. Oneness isn't. And that's my that was my entry for oneness. But this um, alien perspective that immediately, that's... Um, fundamentally traumatizing and perhaps divides you from the human realm is, is in both was in your both, both in your inbox and my outbox this morning. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's, um, I mean, not to get stuck on the astronaut thing, you use that as an example, but it's a very powerful one because it's a very non-conformist position, needless to say. Uh, and it's very much what prisoner infinity is about now that, you put it in those terms, that kind of betrayal of dissociation that relates to space travel and trying to leave the planet. But uh, yeah, without getting sidetracked into that, the larger resonance of what you just said is in something that I was writing in my notes about a gambler's anatomy, which is, and I will just try and paraphrase myself, that Leeson um, is forever trying to write about what is not um, and I, I made a comment like something like it's like you're trying to write and still leave the page blank. <laughs> but I like that. Yeah, and or or to to work by a process of exclusion. I mean, this connects also with. Um, I mean, a simpler uh, or more or less esoteric description might be to try to write outside yourself, which is like the astronaut leaving. It's, trying to look at the earth from the moon which connects to you know the keatsian idea of the negative capability hmm. have we already discussed this I'm having... i don't know <laughs> but you know that that the the goal of the writer is to write as other than oneself to get outside into an, an indefinite uh voice that that's not that's not originating from yourself and hmm. um so right to 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 write what is not I like I like I like the suggestion, and um, I mean there's also you know Bruno as a character is trying to uh, slip the noose of of uh, origins of self definition and and trauma um, into some you know um, unfixed position. You know, he's a gambler at a game that he he claims to prefer because it's um, it's honest. 
you can always see what's what's true on a backgammon board. There are no hidden cards. So it's mm-hmm. a preference for surfaces. Right. As opposed to depths and sequence. Yeah, that that was one of the recurring themes that that I stumbled across time and time again was the the uh, juxtaposition of shallow and deep and also inner and outer. Mm-hmm. And so when you were to and, but, and then I also hypothesized from that as talking about conscious and unconscious and the metaphor of the blood is that when he sees his own blood he faints. So when he sees what's inside of him, uh, as in what what is unconscious becomes conscious, he himself becomes unconscious. Right. Which is <laughs> what you were describing there as trying to write outside of yourself. It's like a conscious kind of automatic writing whereby you don't actually lose your own awareness of what's happening. Yeah. Even though you want to get out of the way of what's happening. Um, and one of the ways... <clears throat> I mean, the first question, I, formal question I had for you relates to this was to what extent are your novels coded? Because more, more even than Chronic City, my experience of Gamma's anatomy, and I don't know how much of this is just me uh, feeling this symbiotic connection to your own unconscious because I've related so much to your writing, but uh, that it seemed to be more the most coded novel mm-hmm. of yours, at, le- at least since Chronic City that I've read. Yeah, I, I'm very interested in that suggestion. Of course, you sent me the link to uh, the, the, the Lolita Code and the idea that Nabokov identified with the uh, the word code specifically. You know, that that um, documentary about cracking the code of Lolita begins with, you know, as it were, a kind of a confession or a, or a, or a provocation or it. Uh, invitation from from Nabokov to treat his books as codes because he himself is oh taking possession of that word he says I I I I I regard them as codes and I think that I would prefer to move sideways to some other suggestion that I don't think of them as codes per se but uh, perhaps more as um, I think the word I would choose would be a rebus mm-hmm. series of images that are that add up to some other meaning um, but are undeniably also themselves you know when you look at a puzzle that's in the form of a rebus it's a series of visual things and plus signs or equal signs and again <laughs> in a sense everything's something on its face you know a hamburger is a hamburger <laughs> a, a, you know Berlin is Berlin um, and and yet the the series of things adds up to some other unquantifiable thing in the manner of a rebus where you're always in the presence of the clue with its own tangible properties um, the clue doesn't dissolve just because you're pursuing what the different uh, huh. emblematic presences or situations or set pieces or t- you know the uh, iconography of the book is very important to me you know hmm. uh, as a series of encounters and most I'd say in fact you know when I say it's a like a, a rebus 
I'd say most of my attention goes on, you know, if, if, if the rebus is, you know, hamburger plus tumor plus Berlin plus California plus, you know, or minus Singapore um, plus, right. plus hangman's noose minus, yeah. you know, the Haymarket riots. You know, if, if, if all of those things are meant to be puzzled over it is as if you could, could actually conjugate them and come out with a, a, the, a successful meaning, I spend as much time painting the most dedicated and eloquent hamburger as I can. But making the rebus um, beautiful and charged with um, with with presence, I think that's the best word for it, is as important as what it as the effort I may put into or the wish I may put in, in a sense, it's almost more of a kind of a, a desire, not under my command, that the, that the rebus produce some in, immense sense of cumulative power and meaning in your, in your, um, in your conjugation of it, you know, when you put it mm-hmm. all together. So whereas a code sounds like once you've cracked the code, the clues dissolve, they become secondary. They're only a, uh, an avenue or a or a medium for this other meaning. In the case of a rebus, I mean, you know, let me let me step sideways again and say this is a rebus in the with a level of commitment um, that you might find uh, in in my in my idealization anyway of what I do. You might say that this is a rebus painted with the with the care found in a painting by, you know, René Magritte or, or, um, or, or, or Max Ernst, where I, I want you to be almost overwhelmed by the presence of the clues themselves as experiences, mm-hmm. as something that you undergo and, and abide with and, and contemplate. You know, I'd like you to be able to kind of walk in and touch the clues and feel that they're so absolutely themselves that, you know the interpretation is um, is is necessary, even if you can never completely arrive at it. That that, that uh, the invitation to 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 sit with these things and make them into something complete and total, make a meaning come out at the other end, is is made necessary by the beauty with which or the, the intensity with which they're experienced. That seems like that would be a a very delicate balance because you're describing like making the clue so real that as in real life a clue is not just a clue like if you find a you know a handkerchief on the floor of a murder scene that might indicate who the killer is but it's still just a handkerchief as is what you're saying and so if the the reader got so immersed in the objects that you intend to be clues they could even forget that they're clues or never even realize that they're clues. Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, that's, that's why it's a, it's a, um, the, the highest game is to make, uh, the, the book feel like a kind of a, a life experience where everything is connected to meanings and outcomes that, that you conclusions or, you know, um, uh, distilled into emotions or reflections, um, but it's also undergone. 
it's also embodied. Mm. I mean, do you forget as a writer? Because the first sense I got from what you were describing there was that, oh, Leeson himself doesn't know what the code means. So, well, do you, I don't. Yeah. I don't have a a, a decisive, um, preemptive kind of meaning that I'm trying to produce. I, I myself, am going to arrive uh, mm. at it as a as a as a form of um, interpretations of sensations that I'll experience having put these things into the same um, place. I mean, if the, if the, if, if the meaning was simple enough to, um, to look at in advance, I wouldn't be very driven to write the book. And I wouldn't think the book would convey the sense, the air of, um, of discovery or, or, um, you know, the propositional intensity of an experience where things are, meaning is being produced, not not being referred to, but being produced. Mm-hmm. I, I would think, I mean, my impression reading Gamma's Anatomy was that this certainly could be read, as your other novels, as a narrative, mm-hmm. as a story, and without any attention trapped by the metaphorical underlayer. I had the opposite experience, and part of my... Part of the fascination and the confusion and what I wrestle with while reading it and while writing about it is, you know, how much am I um, spiking the ground of your own novel or how much am I uh, projecting my own meanings into what I'm doing because I've developed this relationship with your writing. But Hmm. my experience was that uh, this is all metaphor. Like everything that happened... I found a metaphorical meaning in it, and I didn't have to look very far, at least up to a certain point. Uh, there was a certain point in the novel where I lost the metaphoric thread, and I felt I felt lost. I felt abandoned by you, the writer. We can get to that at a certain point, maybe. Um, but certainly for the first two-thirds, almost the first two books, I was just constantly finding this gold. It was like panning for gold. like In the narrative, in the events, it just kept recurring. Um, the same meanings again, but deepening and expanding and um, becoming more coherent. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah. I like I like the description, and of course, I'm 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 anxious that it feels that it uh, abandoned you at some point. Um, I do I do want this book to to feel uh, turbulent with. Um, concentrated meetings under the surface you know it's not it's not it's mostly not a very um you know the bruno himself doesn't have the capacity to think abstractly or or you know i guess i'd say you know philosophically in in very sustained ways uh, Mm -hmm. at at all but so the book should feel that it's asking you to to understand what he can't, <laughs> you know, um, and and com- and you know, and commanding your attention in a sense by this uh, anxiety that there's something very important to understand that's that's elusive. Um, I hope that's there. Yeah. Would you say that the book was a tragedy? Yes, I think it's a. a, a I I not, I would actually characterize this book as a a horror novel. 
Um, I mean, if we're looking for sort of the, the, the literary genre, I think it's a it's a it's a um, absurdist uh, existential horror novel, and I don't I can't think of very many places where I would say openly that I intend it to be you know, to participate in that tradition or that genre because the expectations that surround horror, you know, apart from my surgery, there isn't, there isn't, there isn't enough gore. There isn't enough terror. People are just going to um, think that I'm trying to participate in something that I'm not, you know, a game that I'm not even trying to play, which is that of freaking you out or, or making you scared. But the, the descent seems to me one of, that's more characteristic of, that genre than of the genre of tragedy. Um, it's it's a um, a trap, and Bruno can't escape the trap. There's some moments where you might hope that he can. Um, whereas a tragedy, I think, is conducted on slightly other terms. Mm-hmm. So, um, one of the things that was clear, and I think you've already said this about the novel, this is about, the, you didn't put it this way, I did, about the pull of the past. Mm-hmm. You mentioned trauma, which of course is one of my yeah. areas of interest, and I did feel that there was some trauma in, in Bruno's past that wasn't being referred to, and I thought, oh, I'm, I must be just imagining that because I see trauma everywhere. Um, but certainly, his whole... Uh, trajectory and momentum seems to be uh, a reaction against something, an attempt to get out of something, yeah. and, and so, so what you're describing it seems is that that's what that's the trap he's in, in a sense. His attempt to get out of the trap, to get away from the past, is what what leads to him becoming fully uh, imprisoned in it. Well, absolutely, but the way out of the past is, um, and in this I'm indebted to the to some terms that were introduced into my thinking by a, a writer I know I've recommended to you, Lawrence Rickles. Um, the, the, the way out of the trap of the past is through um, uh, successful mourning, you know, um, and Bruno's attempt is um, to do what, uh, of course, you know, an addict would, would traditionally call a, doing a geographical. He tries to mm-hmm. just step physically out of the, the traumatic scenario rather than addressing it or mourning it um, as it, as it requires. And um, he's not, I mean, he's hardly alone <laughs> in this kind of, you know, uh, this, and this is where I think in some important way, the book is about Europe and California about this idea that you can, you know, migrate away from the site of the tomb <laughs> in which you're implicated. Mm. Uh, I, I have to ask this, not just for vanity's sake, but for honesty's sake. Um, were you, because in the afterwards, seen not seen it, that was written in Berlin, and of course the novel begins in Berlin, and I think you mentioned reading Seen and Not Seen on the train in Europe. So were you working on this novel while you were reading Seen and Not Seen? Oh, sure, absolutely. I mean, it was where I was uh, thinking about your interpretations of my 
of my writing quite a lot as I was, I mean, you could say most simply, this is the first book I've written that has the benefit of your interpretations. Um, because I was, I was without them until then. So as a fundamental, you know, context, uh, they're, they're present. And, um, and I think resonated with my responses to a number of other pieces of, uh, you know, stim- stimulus that, that I, that I credit with the inception of this book. I was rereading Graham Greene, who I'd read when I was in my, you know, early teenage years. I'd read him at 13, 14, 15, 16, compulsively. I was in Berlin, so I was thinking about the condition of ex- expatriatism, which is partly your own situation. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I began to relate to the idea of a literal expatriate character as opposed to a figurative one. I realized that I'd taken what is always literal in green, these Englishmen abroad, understanding or not understanding these other places and what the, they have, those other places have to tell them about who they are and what they've left behind in England. Um, and I, I began to, to want to claim this motif in a more literal and direct way to connect the idea of national identity and trauma, which is also one of your subjects, this, you know, um, aristocratic, corrupt England that you flee but can't abandon, and mm-hmm. the the traumatic legacy that you can't resolve that comes from a kind of a decadent backdrop, and and also you, you know your um, alertness to the. Uh, the kind of um, super charismatic, super corrupt figures in in you know that I that I work with again and again these these kind of uh, Svengali uh, Falstaffs you know they're like bad charismatic bad charismatic charismatic uh, surrogate fathers uh, mm. it's, you know it's it's something that I I. I have recurrent in the work and um, I associate it with influences like Orson Welles films, Mr. Arkadin and um, touch of evil. And, uh, and, but placing that in a more specific, um, you know, uh, the, the, the guru in the background who walks with uh, Bruno on the beach and tells him that he's, special and powerful uh, mm-hmm. and then and then you know his when you talk about his unresolved traumas you know the the influence of that kind of mentorship or sponsorship in his psyche and then the way he helplessly helplessly reproduces that in his relationship with Edgar Falk um, you know who's a sort of manager or or handler Right. I think a lot of that connects to your interpretations in seen and not seen. 
and 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 other work you were doing around that time that you were drawing my attention to, uh, you know, on, on your blog. Well, I mean, that's quite, quite surprising, probably shouldn't be. Uh, I mean, it's, it wasn't as much more than the validation I was looking for, so um, I'll try not to be gobsmacked. <laughs> Uh, the the specific um, thing that I felt reading Gamma's Anatomy was uh, was the parallels with my brother of this character. Yeah. Well, I I don't know that much about your brother beyond what what your work informs me of, but he's very compelling, and and you know I I connect him to other things that that have entranced me. I mean, the the um, uh, Adam Curtis's c- series of BBC documentaries called The Mayfair Set that depicts this world of men's, you know, gentlemen's club back rooms in London and how they influenced the arms trade and the, you know, the oil oil, oil fields in, in distant lands and so forth. Connected, I think, also with you know your your description of your brother's world and the the uh, this this uh, air of you know kind of decadent access. And Bruno himself is he's kind of a um, I mean, what what do you call it? He's like a a dandy in the underworld, but 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 he's also a total you know. Not naive. He's he's like you know. I I also think of you know. I was consciously and unconsciously reproducing images from uh, your favorite filmmaker Stanley Kubrick, of course, with Barry Lyndon and and um, Eyes Wide Shut. Those those mm-hmm. journeys into the underworld, half understood journeys into the underworld by these naive characters who are not competent to manipulate the the aristocrats among whom they find themselves. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's probably lurking in there, too. You know, there are all sorts of things. This is this is always the case for me, that if something's good enough or strange enough to get onto the page for me, it's because it's um, hyper... Uh, it's 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 already bearing hyper interpretive, you know, burdens. <laughs> it, it's um, it's overdetermined, and um, so you know, he's Bruno is two or three different people I've known personally growing up, including one, well, friend, younger brother of a friend who actually became a professional backgammon hustler at one point, but with whom I've had no contact as a, as an adult. Um, He's, you know, he's Ryan O'Neill in Barry Lyndon. He's um, Tom Cruise in Eyes Wide Shut. He's your brother. He's, you know, about a dozen other things. To even begin to be something I can write about, he has to be sort of a impossible, capacious container for all of these different things that are stirring and 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 disturbing me. Hmm. Yeah. Well, the 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 line that stands out most. Uh, strikingly as being a Sebastianism is 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 where Bruno thinks to himself that his sole life accomplishment is his personality mm-hmm, right which is absolutely 
what dandyism was about in my brother's eyes yeah. and what he what he, he embodied and um yeah but it, you know in a way i mean i uh, obviously your your brother's story is a tragic one but in a way your brother's accomplishment is surpasses bruno's because bruno aspires to that he he flatters himself <laughs> your brother for what it's worth and i think you might say very little he did accomplish a, a, an unforgettable personality bruno is almost more a, a, a kind of a, a a piece of raw canvas on which there are a few jottings <laughs> your brother was a kind of extremely garish painting that that hung on a very prominent wall to the amazement and admiration of, 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 you know, a great number of people. He was a really extraordinary, uh, uh, case of the personality as, as the life accomplishment. Bruno was a kind of, uh, undercooked <laughs> personality. He's actually better at just occupying that space, briefly for people who, who, who might fantasize about him for a night or two and then realize he's so under uh, underdeveloped that he's not he's not amusing for more than a couple of nights. You either win or lose a lot of money, you might have sex with him, but you know, I think your brother was unforgettable. I think Bruno, seen from the outside, might be terribly forgettable. Hmm. Well, even, uh, I want to say as a literary creation, he's forgettable, because that would definitely be the wrong, that would communicate the wrong thing. He's very memorable in the context of the world that you've put him. But as a character, uh, he's, he's, he does seem to be mostly externals, uh, except for what he's wrestling with. So that might seem like a contradiction, because he's wrestling with huge existential problem, but he doesn't seem to be aware of it, perhaps. As, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, he's 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 a self-devised vacuum. He's a mask even before he put he puts on a mask, and then his right. problem, his existential problem is what what to do having having successfully created a, a a vacuity where you ought to have a self, you know. So it's a very uneasy existential problem because the the person isn't deep enough to have one. <laughs> the problem is having rendered oneself shallow out of some imperative or necessity is, can you ever be deep enough even to suffer? So is that, is that the problem then is that he's not, because I'm just trying to feel my way around this novel, having read it. And as I said, come away with a, a sense of dissatisfaction, even though I'm haunted by it and even haunted by the possibility that that feeling of being abandoned by the narrative and that feeling of disappointment well, was actually intrinsic to the narrative because that was Bruno's experience. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I'm definitely unsure of what just happened, as I say, having read it and having more than just read it, having you know, imbued it, or not imbued it, the opposite, absorbed it. I even dreamt about it last night. Um, I also dreamt that you sent me another copy, like a new, a new draft. <laughs> Um, but anyway, coming back to what you were saying, the suffering, um, do you think that part of what you're describing there then of his trap is his inability to suffer, to really suffer what his, his condition? I think that's, I hadn't formulated it until this conversation, but it seems a pretty good name for, 
for one of the problems. I mean, you know, so to put it in the light of a book you know very well, you know, he's, I mean, the nearest character to Bruno in my in my earlier work is obviously Chase and Stedman. I don't yeah. that came came into your thoughts, but it's yeah, yeah, very much. So. It's pretty direct, and in a way, you could see this book as an experiment in isolating Chase from the other elements, the other propositions in Chronic City, especially, of course, Perkis Tooth. This is a Chase and Stedman who never gets filled up for better and worse with with the kind of meaning that a Perkis Tooth insists he mm. experience, including the, 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 the love that risks tragedy, because when Perkis right. dies, it's tragic for Chase and Stedman. But Bruno, you know, I mean, in a way, if you look at this book as a... As a a satirical re-examination of the Chase and Stedman figure, you know, he's, he's offered a kind of a, a poor man's Perkis tooth in the anarchist. Mm -hmm. The, 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 the uh, slider cook. And he makes as little of him ultimately as, you know, I might believe Chase and Stedman would really make of Perkis Tooth. <laughs> he can't take it in. Mm. Um, and, you know, so I think it's a very despairing book in some ways. Yeah, I was just going to say that very word. It seems to be soaked in despair. Um, something you just said is kind of intriguing. Maybe it's just intellectually so, but I think there's more there, which is the idea of taking a character, and, and as I see it, your characters, and this is always true of writers, but I think it's particularly observable with your work, or some of it, that, that they're your literary avatars. Mm -hmm. You create a version of yourself, and then you put it into this world. Um, and uh, so, and what you just described there is the idea of taking the, the same literary avatar and putting him into a different genre uh -huh, yeah. and seeing how that genre. So you took you took Chase from a sci-fi surrealist, whatever you would call Chronic City, uh, absurdist uh, social commentary novel, and then you put him into a, a horror novel. And of course, the outcome was far worse. Yeah, yeah, he's in the horror genre. Not as lucky. He's not as ironically. Chase feels more, but is also his Teflon works better. Bruno feels less, but his Teflon is completely scraped off. <laughs> yeah, but see, I mean, it seems as though Bruno goes through so much more. Um, and I, I imagine you intended this. It, it seems as though he's um, taken through a rite of passage which has the potential to. Um, transform him genuinely. Is that, is that your disappointment that he wasn't able to be transformed? I, I don't think it was simply that because um, I'm a realist and I know that it's like lightning striking in a bottle, that kind of thing, that, that we can actually somehow open and surrender to events to the extent that we are truly transformed. I think it almost never happens, but um, 
so it wasn't simply that, but it was well, there was there was a um, an uncertainty of of how much you, the author, were. Um, I don't want to say it's difficult to use words because it's not in control. Because one of the things I, lo I love about the way you write is it seems that you're not controlling it, um, and I can't even say not conscious of because that's another thing that's nice. Is that a lot of the time it seems that you're not quite conscious of what's coming out, but somehow as though, and this is feels risky just saying this, but that you were backed away from something just as Bruno did, but I couldn't tell mm. if if it was you or if it was Bruno, if it was both. So the disappointment actually um, is inseparable also from a structural one, which I felt that, and I still feel this a few days later, that the action that you pack into the last book or the last hundred pages, mm -hmm. there's so much action. And I use, in my notes, I use the dogma term superficial action, mm -hmm. which of course means violence and guns. Right. And yeah. all of this stuff is happening after these almost 200 pages of, slow build up but also kind of a searching metaphorical surreal narrative where um we're really discovering the extent of bruno's crisis or his existential condition and then suddenly all this stuff happens and um so it wasn't so much how it c came out in terms of it ending the way it ended it, it was that i didn't feel um that i was that uh the the meanings of the experiences that were happening to Bruno were fully communicated. I mean, I, I felt that, and this is like a, a weirdly positive criticism, at least it's a lot better than the opposite, that the book was just way too short. Mm -hmm. Like I needed another 200 pages yes. extra yeah. to explore all of that, what happened to Bruno when he took this wrong step. Um, and just to say something more specific around this so maybe give you more to respond to that uh the i began to feel this when when magican is coming so his his anima figure is coming to rejoin him and right for that he has this is the backgammon strip backgammon seduction scene with tina um the i mean i wasn't sure at this point what's Leatham doing is is he the, the character's going to get saved by the feminine and that whole felt like a trope and like, this isn't going to work or, you know, that, that, that's not right. That's not, uh, you know, freedom from identity, which has seemed to be the, the real, the goal here that was in sight. Um, and then the actual strip back gown scene was very interesting in retrospect because I was reading, it, I was thinking, I found the scene really almost horrific. Mm -hmm. I found the scene so bleak and yet, and I think this is part of your art, but you may you may disagree and say I read it wrong. But uh, it, it seemed like it, it was meant to be read as as a entertaining sexual seduction scene where Bruno's getting what he wants. And but no, it, there's actually something really bleak and terrible. Like he's taking taking all the wrong turns, mm -hmm. making all the wrong moves. Yeah, yeah. It's sex. It's drugs. It's gambling. <laughs> this isn't freedom, right? Uh, and and there is that does play out it was yeah. it was he did fall into a trap there right well In yeah i sense. think that uh it's meant paradoxically i mean i think that i would say looking at how i feel about the book afterwards that tira is a very very damaged 
character who is nevertheless his nearest actual soul companion. Mm. But as is often the case with two damaged people who might in some more ideal scenario nurture one another, their recognition, their mutual recognition is both only very partial and mostly takes the form of uh, re- revulsion and, and infliction, inflicting of damage, you know. Um, but so I think their their encounter is somewhat degenerate, but it also is a glimpse of Bruno's missing insides in some way in his experiences with her that doesn't doesn't really present itself in any real way with Madchen. The fantasy, mm. as you say, mm. the fantasy trope of rescue, angelic rescue, it presents itself with Madchen. And if you look at it on the face of it, um, you know, she should seem like the better prospect. But I think mm. in terms of an actual interrogation of Bruno's existential condition. Tira has something for him, but he can't take it, and possibly she can't give it. It can only be glimpsed in a kind of tormenting, you know, in a haze of, as you say, sex, sex, drugs, and and, and aggression, and and cynical um, intensity. The I think you should feel deeply the loss of his contact with Tira after, in a way, uh, Tira is substituted. I mean, after Madchen is substituted, I should say. But it just doesn't mean you're you're not right that that scene should feel like he's he's being overwhelmed by something terrible or being drowned in a way in her presence and her aggression and. You know, and I mean, on on the literal symbolic level of the game, the book has a series of game moves. Mm. He loses, he has to lose to even glimpse winning, <laughs> right? To, to, to see underneath, he always has to lose the game. And if you conceive that the game is everything, then he can only be devastated by losing the game, even when it allows him to see more. Um, hmm. But, you know, if you, we were talking at the very start about the book as a series of, you know, you said, is it a code? And I said, maybe it's a, a rebus. Well, one of the most, for me, the most charged, you know, images in the rebus is Tira's unremoved cyst on her inner thigh. Hmm. Defiance about it not having to come out. Hmm. I actually missed that one. It's a it's a it's a intense scene. There's a lot going on. But she reassures him when he finds this weird floating ball of hardness under the skin of her inner thigh that 
it's okay. She knows it's there and it, it doesn't have to come out. Yeah, and I remember the incident. I just missed it as a, another piece of code, another clue. Yeah. Uh, uh, but that's that thing again, yeah, that what's inside needing to come out or not. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't have the, I don't have an answer for you, and I don't know, I, I certainly know the book is, in a way, designed as a series of very um, violent anticlimaxes, you know, I mean, the, the, the kinds of actions that you, you, you see cluttering up that last hundred pages are, whether there's too many of them, and it's an error, a compositional error on my part, or, or not, they're certainly not meant to be satisfying or purgative or, you know, um, mm. they're, they're, they're all supposed to deepen your anxiety and frustration, your sense of misplaced, uh, you know, misdirected um, energy. You know, when, when, when Bruno, who, who's been infuriatingly passive, starts to take actions, they're never, they're never the right ones. Yeah, that's very clear. Um, I think, I mean, maybe I'll be re reiterating what I just said, but that for most of the book, or the first two thirds of the book, I, there was this sense of almost perfect symbiosis between the themes and the narrative. Mm -hmm. So everything that was occurring in the narrative w was accompanied by a kind of aha, a very subtle, gentle aha understanding why these things are happening and, and then I began to lose that sense um, at a certain point and and so because of that the the narrative became less meaningful it literally became less meaningful um, and you know I'm still thinking about it and sort of running it through my mind one thing that occurred to me whether this is it might be completely off is this that um, I mean, you were wrestling with much bigger, much bigger events in the last part of the book, riots and, uh, you know, subterfuge and espionage and counter-espionage, all in this mm -hmm. sort of quasi-metaphorical way, you're never quite sure how literal it is, although I think it's pretty literal that Stolarski used uh, Bruno as a as an agent provocateur to, to achieve some economic end. Um, so, the, so one of the strong themes there is, well, I won't put it into words. I just put a question was, uh, I want, I wonder just today, like whether some of your disillusionment uh, with Occupy, maybe not specifically, but what Occupy represented was bleeding into the novel mm. through all of that. That's that's a great question. That's a really interesting question. I mean. Um, of course, my experience at Berkeley as a place of um, kind of uh, ca calcified or trapped in amber radical possibility uh, predates Occupy, specifically. Hmm. It goes back to my living there in the 80s and 90s. And I suppose that that Uh, sense of unfulfilled desire for the radical expressivity to add up to something effective connects 
to um, connects to later ways in which I wrestled with my ambivalence about Occupy in uh, Dissident Gardens. That's probably right. But of course, this is always a self-accusation above all. It's about the way those radical possibilities are themselves a kind of, you know, as useless as a as a tumor that gives me insights that I can't, you know, actualize <laughs> as they live on in, in the body politic and they live on in my intimate self-conception as someone who comes from a meaningful place of, you know, uh, critique or um, dissident um, abreaction to the status quo. And yet it never seems to um, be produced in any effective way. It's, it's, it, it, it is about as um, oblique as Bruno's idea of himself as someone with extrasensory powers. Mm. Its only result is that he feels uh, less powerful. <laughs> And no one else is even sure that it's there at all. Because the description of the events in the last part of the novel, without going into them, so it's difficult to talk about a novel that you know, other listeners may not have read, and keeping the meanings as general as possible. But what you're what you're describing um, there, and I said, it seems to be in quite like you rush through it is my feeling in terms of really like understanding the machinery that you're describing but essentially it's the um the whole uprising in berkeley that bruno partly instigates and partly jumps on board is manufactured mm-hmm. in the in, in the interests of darth vader of the elite yeah. which of course is something i've been writing about in terms of my family and social engineering and essentially perhaps partly why I wasn't able to read Distant Gardens, I don't know, but that I've never really had any, um, I won't say illusions because that's stacking the deck in my favour, but I've never had any beliefs about the possibility of social change through activism. Yeah. I've just always felt that the ruling class rule, and that's the way it's always been, and probably the way it always will be, like it's a Phil, Phil K. Dickian perspective, which I know that you share, Like you, perhaps you're divided in that particular way. Um, yeah, I probably am divided. Because yeah. when you put it so simply, I'm, 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 I'm made, I'm made uh, uncomfortable. But I don't have an answer. I'm only made uncomfortable, so I'm sure I am divided. Hmm. And um, one of the things that uh, in the novel where you again referring to this, um, the shallow and the deep, is you equate or Bruno equates or discovers perhaps that there's an equation between the shallow with the ruling class and the deep with the, the mass of disenfranchised mm-hmm. poor, which I thought was a very interesting metaphor or an application of a metaphor, because it's not one that had occurred to me and probably doesn't occur to many people. But I think it's true, and it's interesting for me personally, is that you know I've, I've uh, extricated myself from the aristocracy as much as I can. I'm still working on the internal you know, removal of that facial tumour, that identity, 
but it's becoming more and more manifest and I've got this thrift store and my daily dealings are with welfare people you know there's rich people in this town but they don't shop in, in our store so yeah. essentially in dealing with the disenfranchised and it does feel that there's more life there and there's more depth there um, and breadth and everything else as opposed to this you know the point of the, py the pyramid where the supposed eye is it's just like this identity prison that it's yeah. just most intensely confining um, so that all felt very real and valid in the novel to me but and um, what happened because Bruno himself he had this discovery that this is where he belonged was in the underlayer but he he didn't he didn't find a home there. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, is this, I mean, how much of this is, uh, I mean, all of this is you wrestling with something. I know that because yeah. there's just so much blood in the novel. Yeah. So, I'm, but I don't know how to turn that into question <laughs> without it just being very pat. But Well, I think it's, I think it's right that I feel I come from a place that's inaccessible to me that is, immensely poignant but i find myself only making gestures that divide me from it you know the 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 the, the revolutionary idealisms of the counterculture in the 60s i'm exquisitely sensitive to them because of my attachment and my sense of um rootedness in them but i end up um I, I mean, I guess I find them both unsafe and ridiculous for for actual intimate application to my life, uh, to you know, to my self construction. Anything mm -hmm. you you'd see about me looks fairly, you know, normative and bourgeois from from the perspective of those um, idealisms. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of exile, self, self, uh, you know, constantly self generating division from, uh, from, from a, from a desire that I, that's become displaced from me historically and, um, and, and practically, and that I keep rehearsing again in, in, you know, in the space between Chase and, and Perkis, right? How, how do you mean? Well, I'm, I, one part of me is Chase and Stedman conforming to expectations and taking a useful but hollow role in a, in a ongoing charade that I don't feel invested in. And the other part of me is this making this deep fugitive dissident investigation mm. that's doomed, and I can't find the the bridge between the two. And this is you as a writer we're talking about, as well as you as a human being yeah. in society. Probably both. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So. Because one of the areas of tension and hence creativity for me in reading you and writing about you is, uh, in our relationship at all, is the difference in status. Mm -hmm. I know, which and seems this... to be so 
defining for you and seems so, in a sense, because um, I don't view myself from the outside that way. I just muddle through each day, you know, doing, well, the cliche would be, you know, putting my pants on one leg at a time, feeling lost and distressed and, like, even I've probably spent whatever good, uh, you know, goodwill I've earned by now, and I'm and I'm at any moment I feel almost certain that I'm back to being a very marginal operator who was mistaken yeah. mistaken for having the status that you're constantly yeah. um, referring to. An imposter. I imagine I would feel that way too if it ever happened. But um, I mean, I brought it up now it's in terms of the very specifics of the things you're talking about that. Your, your status as a writer means that you can make a living as a writer and without going into the details. I mean, you, you are socially very well placed through your writing. Yeah, and my, so, my life has been created, the con- conditions of my current life have been created by, my rec- by being recognized for my writing. But I'll, I, I'll, 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 I'll quibble at least to the extent of pointing out that that's usually mistaken for a kind of um, luxurious financial independence that isn't the truth of my life or most writers' lives. I teach for a living. Mm-hmm. And um, I, as a person who grew up working in used bookstores and I'm surrounded by used books where you see me now on your screen, right? I, I'm constantly aware of the ephemerality of literary reputations they're just basically being plowed under thousands of us are being plowed under at any given time into a kind of it's as if it never occurred you know these the the the, this ocean of the out-of-print novels by people who had some kind of you know uh recognition Mm. uh at some point and so i don't really see it as counting for very much I'm not even sure I'm in fashion anymore. <laughs> you you may be um, according me a status that was more true ten years ago, um, and um, and may certainly not be at all legible or important, except in a kind of footnote way. Oh, oh yes, at one point they were reading this guy mm-hmm. in forty or fifty or certainly a hundred years. So it really doesn't separate us the way you think it does. And, you know, when you dared to ask whether um, whether seen and not seen had colonized my thinking, I mean, I've only had three now, maybe three and a half, uh, well, maybe less than three and a half, maybe two and two halves, books written about me because seen and not seen is not all about my work. Um, and there's, you know, there's interesting writing about me in a couple of places, but writers who are remembered forever, who have the real status that you're awarding to me have a hundred books written about them. The only ones we remember are those who generate masses of scholarship because of their, um, unusual sway with critics and scholars or because of their immense popularity with a public reading public, which it itself in turn seems to command scholarship. And there's no given that that's the fate of my writing. I could be as, let's say as 
briefly fashionable as and then you know forgotten as my own hero Thomas Berger who you know I I I know because I care so much about his work three or four or maybe five books were ever written about his writing so seen and not seen is one of the, one of the only things and easily one of the most interesting things ever written about what I've done why wouldn't it have mm. colonized my thinking <laughs> uh, yeah. the separation between us in terms of this status is just um, it's a construction that uh, you could pick apart I think by now much more diligently than you have I think you have an attachment to it <laughs> which is one that I'm interested in and compels me and doesn't, I don't, I don't disrespect it. I think that that kind of projection or fantasy is something that I actually think about and write about quite a lot myself. What is it to place someone in a constellation of kind of cultural importance and then respond to them on those terms? I mean, it's part of what I'm thinking about, Mm -hmm. you know, when I have, you know, someone like Perkis Tooth, feeling that, you know, the Rolling Stones song Shattered is a kind of a message and a command to him directly. I feel like you've placed me in the position that Perkis Tooth places in the song Shattered. You know, and, and that dance of fixation and reverence and uh, projection is very meaningful to me. I, I uh, am a fanish personality. Mm-hmm. So I don't mean to discredit your decision to place me in that kind of. Um, well, I'm invested in doing so, yes. of course, because I've got your eyes and ears, <laughs> right? So there's a, there's a complicity there, which, of course, as you know, is quite dangerous. Um, and the reason I bring it up now is is, is specifically about the novel because. Uh, and what we were talking about about the the upper strata and the underlayer, yes, and yes. because of course for the for the poor, it, for the the rich can say, oh, that's just a projection of the poor that somehow we're happier than they are, which is probably true that part. But it is a luxury of being high status to be able to see that as a construction, as opposed to of in course. this case. Oh, of course, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You, don't have right? the, you don't have the luxury of of seeing that that you know uh, that people. The fact that people sometimes bother me and want to interview me doesn't really change me or my life situation in a very. Uh, this takes up some of my time. I mean, I, no offense, right. right? But I mean, if if everyone who wanted to um, get a little tiny piece of me by, like, you know, sending me a few questions on an email so that they could put it on their website, also sent me five thousand dollars, well, I'd be doing very nicely. But real power is comes with money. Real power is that true you know, uh, 1% luxury. And it, instead I'm just a muddler, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I, uh, I, I, I do my own dishes. <laughs> um, and, um, so I'm, I'm just a lot more like you kind of, you know, making these things. And then, and then I enjoy a kind of, um, strange experience of, Every now and then, stepping into a room where um, a lot of people feel as you do, that that my books accord me a, a kind of magic status. And believe me, I participate in a very, very uh, luxuriant way in that um, moment when it occurs. But I'm, I'm, 
I'm mostly just a guy at home with my computer and my kids and my wife, you know, doing doing what I do. the end of the first part of my conversation with Jonathan Leatham exploring his new novel A Gambler's Anatomy you can listen to part two of this conversation at horticulture.com slash liminalist that will be linked in the notes at newbooksnetwork.com thanks to Jonathan Leatham and to Marshall Poe for making this podcast possible you are listening to the music of Origami Conspiracy It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.